My paper this afternoon is a, um, is a preliminary attempt to trace Rothbard's legacy in economic thought. Murray and Rothbard's contribution to the revival and newfound appreciation of the medieval and early modern scholastics, I think is one of his greatest lasting achievements, and I know Murray has had a lot of lasting achievements. No other book before or since has chronicled the importance and legacy of scholasticism as much as economic thought before Adam Smith. Um, certainly, I think everyone should uh, have a copy of this, both the um, economic thought before Adam Smith as well as uh, the second volume, which is classical economics. Uh, they're both masterful works. Um, and of course, economic thought before Adam Smith is that first volume. His work not only sketched more than 50 minor, um, and again, in quotes, minor, these are minor scholastics, um, which, I, which I placed up here. And if you can notice, some of them, of course, are, are philosophers, um, uh, all scholastics uh, working within the uh, tradition of scholasticism, uh, taking us all the way to 1663, the latter part of the 17th century. Uh, the major writers, again, in quotes, major writers, uh, from St. Albert the Great all, all the way to uh, Juan de Lugo. Um, so his work not only sketched more than 50 minor and major scholastic writers and their works, but also dismissed, and he says this in, in his introduction, the few great men approach as deficient and imprecise. As Rothbard says, quote, the cut and thrust of history itself, the context of the ideas and movements, how people influenced each other and how they reacted to and against one another is necessarily, necessarily left out of the few great men approach, end quote. Not only was Rothbard strongly influenced by the revisionist contributions of Joseph A. Schumpeter, Raymond de Ruver, Marjorie Grace Hutchison, and John T. Noonan, as well as Emil Cowder, and just to throw in, obviously, the influence of uh, Joseph Dorfman, his uh, dissertation mentor at Columbia College at the time at Columbia University. But he also added his own unique Austrian perspective to the literature. Realizing that important knowledge and personalities had been lost by modern economic historians, Rothbard set out to recast the contributions of the scholastics in a decidedly positive light. He writes, it turns out that the scholastics were not simply, quote unquote, medieval, but begun in the 13th century, and expanded and flourished through the 16th and into the 17th century, end quote. Identifying the scholastics as proto-Austrian, Rothbard underscored the importance of studying their methods and appreciating their contributions in the following passage. Quote, far from being cost of production moralists, the scholastics believed that the just price was whatever price was established on the common estimate of the free market. Furthermore, some of the scholastics were far superior to current formalist microeconomics in developing a proto-Austrian dynamic theory of entrepreneurship. Moreover, in macro, the scholastics, beginning with Burden and culminating in the 16th century Spanish scholastics, worked out an Austrian rather than a monetarist supply and demand theory of money and prices and even a purchasing power parity theory of exchange rates, end quote. This rediscovery of the significance of scholasticism and scholastic thought emerged out of, as Rothbard again says, European-trained economists steeped in Latin, the language in which the scholastics wrote. He goes on, he says, it is no accident that the Austrian school, 
The major challenge to the Smith-Ricardo vision arose in a country that was not only sol solidly Catholic, but whose values and attitudes were still heavily influenced by Aristotelian and Thomas thought. Again, as he says, the studying of history and ideas should be an important part of every economist's toolbox. He writes, for if knowledge buried in paradigms lost can disappear and be forgotten over time, then studying older economists and schools of thought need not be done merely for antiquarian purposes or to examine how intellectual life proceeded in the past. Earlier economists can be studied for their important contributions to forgotten and therefore new knowledge today. Valuable truths can be learned about the content of, of, of economics, not only from the journals, but from the texts of long deceased thinkers. So I went down to my basement and uh, went through a couple of boxes which were labeled histories of economic thought and began thumbing through the various texts, both the older texts and some of the newer texts. And not to my surprise, Rothbard's first volume, his economic thought before Adam Smith, uh, had a huge section, obviously, on the scholastics. And I think that's the major significance. Um, so if we look and see, obviously, uh, the amount of pages, and again, we can get into the, the, the fonts and the sizes and so on and so forth, but anything coming close to any kind of scholastic analysis is Joseph Schumpeter's History of Economic Analysis, which was published posthumously in 19, uh, 1954. Um, I, I was ill-advised one semester in assigning uh, Schumpeter's text as the, as the primary text uh, in a history of uh, economic thought class, and uh, I have never used it since, simply because, uh, yes, he's very erudite, yes, he's very complete in some respects, and yet he is very difficult to read. Uh, where, whereas Rothbard's sort of Dorfman-like style uh, really endears oneself to continuing to read this and, and get an appreciation, especially for the scholastics. Uh, third on the list is uh, Henry uh, Spiegel's The Growth of Economic Thought, um, out of Catholic University, 1971, 38 pages of scholastics, of which um, Murray Rothbard um, culled some of uh, Spiegel's work as well. Uh, the Eklund and Hebert text, which I think is in about the fifth edition now, uh, which I use from time to time, uh, again, has 13 pages. Um, so I, I judiciously use that text as, as more uh, related to uh, modern economic thought as opposed to scholastic e economic thought. Um, Lewis H. Haney, in, in which Rothbard sort of rails at Haney uh, for his, uh, uh, well, his, his very short shrifting of the, of the scholastics uh, as well, uh, has 11 pages. Um, Charles Staley, a new text, uh, 10 pages. Uh, Alessandro uh, Rancalia's The Wealth of Ideas, which was some of a, somewhat of a hit in 2005, uh, has 10 pages. Uh, the old John Fred Bell text, uh, which is much more um, interesting when you talk about classical economics, eight pages. Edmund Whitaker's old 1960 text, six pages. Uh, Landreth and Colander's uh, 2002 History of Economic Thought, six pages. And Stanley Brew has none. And I could have listed a lot of, a lot of others that had no pages as, at, at all. Um, again, I think the the, the fact that Rothbard was able to uh, use some of the great research that was available to him at the time and to add to it, 
is really the, uh, the legacy for us today. Um, a little bit about scholasticism, and I think why Murray was certainly attracted to it. With newly translated texts of Aristotle as one of its dialectical focal points, along with the Old and New Testaments, various patristic writings on the Roman jurists, scholasticism was, quote, essentially a rational investigation of every relevant problem in liberal arts, philosophy, theology, medicine, and law, and examined from opposing points of view in order to reach an intelligent scientific solution that would be consistent with accepted authorities, known facts, human reason, and Christian faith. I think he was really attracted by that. There was a there's substance to it. Beginning with St. Anselm, writes James Hitchcock in his recently published uh, book entitled Just Simply a History of the Catholic Church. Beginning with St. Anselm, who defined theology as faith-seeking understanding, in that the truths of faith can be neither proved nor disproved by human reason, but men are obliged to use reason to understand them as far as possible. Scholasticism spread as a system of logical investigation for studying various topics, including economics. It included, says John T. Noonan, the men who were the acknowledged intellectual and moral leaders of all of Europe for several hundred years, and the men who were the acknowledged leaders of part of Europe for later centuries. Deeply rooted in natural law theory, the medieval schoolmen turned their attention to numerous economic topics, including the theory of money, value, and price, the defense of private property, public finance, entrepreneurship, distributive justice, not social justice, wages and profits, international trade and exchange, and interest. Although this system of thought would continue to be influential throughout Europe, scholasticism's greatest exponent was, as I had put on the first slide, the Jesuit Cardinal Juan de Lugo. Although Lugo takes scholasticism well into the 17th century, his penetrating analysis of subjective utility was, according to Rothbard, quote, the culminating work of the Salamancan school, end quote. Unfortunately, scholasticism's demise is summed up by de Ruver in the following way, quote, the demise of scholasticism is not limited to economics, of course, but involves the entire scientific and philosophical system born in the medieval universities and still far from morbid on the eve of the 17th century. In the face of attack, the Aristotelians failed to realize that in order to survive, they had to renew their methods. Instead, they stubbornly refused to accept the new discoveries in experimental science, with the inevitable result that their philosophy shared the fate of their antiquated astronomy, physics, and medicine, and along with them, fell into complete disrepute or discredit. Since the publication of Murray Rothbard's work nearly 20 years ago, numerous scholars have advanced a better and more complete understanding of scholasticism through monographs and journal articles, new translations of long-forgotten Latin texts, republications, and retypesettings of long out-of-print works related to scholasticism, of which I must say the Mises Institute has been at the forefront with the republication of the two-volume work, but especially, most especially for my uh, purposes, economic thought before Adam Smith in 2006. Um, other works, of course, uh, in the bookstore, or the Salamancan School by Marjorie Grice Hutchison um, and others as well, and organizations such as the Wandi Mariana Institute, founded in 2005, named after the work and ideas of the 16th century Spanish scholastic. 
One such advancement has been the recent partial translation, and I say partial um, because, again, Lessius's work is over 800 pages of very, of very tightly typed, dense Latin text. Um, but the recent translation of um, Leonardus Lessius's De Justitia et Ure uh, of Justice and uh, Right, first published in 1605, uh, was done by uh, Wim Decock. Uh, his translation further enhances Rothbard's commentary on Lessius's most significant contributions, including the just price, loan contracts and markets, wages and the labor market, entrepreneurship, money and credit, usury, and titles of interest. But again, his translation is snippets. It's, uh, it's, it's a paragraph here, it's a paragraph there. Again, it's not the complete translation. Um, that would literally be, I think, a lifetime of work. And there are Again, as I put up the, the, two, uh, um, the two front slides of various scholastic writers whose, whose works are remaining in Latin and not translated and, and may never be translated, uh, but Lessius is simply because of his significance and I think his, his growing significance. So as one of the last great scholastics interest in his work by Barry Gordon, uh, Louis Beck, and others, including Murray Rothbard, has had its own specific impact on a growing body of work within the sub-discipline of economic thought. A, a few words about uh, the work itself, um, and then some closing comments. Lessius's most important work was his De Justitia et Ure, On Justice and Right, published in 1605. This work circulated throughout the 17th century in Europe with the cities of Antwerp, uh, Louvain, Lyon, Paris, and, and Venice publishing most of his editions. His work is divided into four books, uh, which most of these unjustice and right uh, sort of compendiums were at the time, uh, which incorporate the four cardinal virtues. De prudencia, of prudence. De justitia, of justice. De fortitudine, uh, of, fort, for, of fortitude. And uh, de temperencia, of temperance. Not surprisingly, of the 808 pages of text in my Antwerp, Plantin Moretus, 7th edition of 1632, uh, 683 pages of that text is dedicated to an examination of justice. And within the, and within the uh, uh, section uh, of his treatise, Lessius devotes nine chapters to book two, to economics, to finance, banking, and international trade. And again, these are the sections in which uh, uh, Wim Decock has, has recently done his, his translation. I believe the scholastic legacy of Marianne Rothbard in the history of economic thought is essentially threefold. First, his rejection of the few great men approach and he didn't like the few great men approach, uh, because again, if you take a look at the, uh, the multi-volume history of, uh, of American intellectual history by Joseph Dorfman, uh, if you read Rothbard side by side uh, uh, and read Dorfman at the same time, you'll understand where he got his style. And again, Dorfman also rejected the, the few great men approach. Um, Dorfman includes all kinds of quote-unquote minor, uh, minor intellectuals and writers in shaping the direction of intellectual thought in early America as well. 
So we have the rejection of the few great men approach to the history of economic ideas. And this provided, I think, Rothbard the opportunity to expand the work of, of earlier historians. He felt a, a kinship to, as I said, some of these early writers like uh, Grice Hutchison and, and Noonan, um, and most especially Schumpeter, and, 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 and dug around for information that wasn't in textbooks or uh, available at the time. No longer would only a, a very few medieval philosophers like St. Thomas Aquinas appear in the early chapters of a standard textbook like, like Haney's textbook or John Fred Bell's textbook. But with the publication of Economic Thought before Adam Smith in 1995, readers have been treated with a comprehensive narrative in an engaging Dorfman style, so engaging um, and compelling, of more than 50 scholastics since the days of St. Anselm. Second, Rothbard's economic thought is a serious attempt to recapture the sense of historical continuity within the history of economic thought, most especially in portraying the uniqueness and innovativeness of the scholastic writers. The history of the past, quote, adds depth to our understanding of the ideas that resulted from it all and which are still with us today. The history of economics can shed light on the history of ideas in general and much that we can learn from that history about the dynamics of controversies and the emergence of paradigms applies to other fields and to our own times as well as to the past, end quote. It is that historical perspective and Rothbard's keen Austrian analysis of numerous scholastic writers that enriches our understanding of various policy questions today. For, quote, history necessarily means narrative, discussion of real persons as well as their abstract theories, says Rothbard, and includes triumphs, tragedies, and conflicts, conflicts which are often moral as well as purely theoretical, end quote. Finally, his work continues to inspire new attempts to explain and better understand the significance of the scholastic contributions to the overall development in the history of economic thought, ideas and concepts that are still with us today because they have enduring value. In the, in the area of, of, of scholastic economic thought, Rothbard's work is the new gold standard, where alchemists are exposed and right reason is on full display. Thank you.